Hello everyone, welcome to the Startup and Career Show, the podcast where we discuss everything about startup and corporate life with founders and business leaders who share their real life experiences. Today we have with us Mr. Albert Lin, who's going to share insights on hydroponic farming with all of us. So welcome to the podcast, Albert. Hi, thanks for having me, Rishabh. Very excited to be here. Uh, to all our listeners, let me introduce Albert to all of you. He's the founder and CEO of Vegbed, an ecta company which develops sustainable hydroponic substrates for indoor and vertical farms. The company aims to increase the speed and efficiency of indoor farms so by utilizing biodegradable materials for soilless food, food production. The company also partnered with numerous commercial farms, large online retailers and has customers in over 26 different countries. He holds a bachelor's in mechanical engineering from Carnegie Mellon University and prior to Wedgebed, he successfully helped build three different startups. So Albert, uh, to begin with, would it be great if you could just throw some light on your professional journey since you were associated with three different startups earlier. Yeah, sure, no problem. Um, so yeah, my background actually is in mechanical engineering, uh, but I started my career off as a proprietary trader uh, for a few years, uh, but that was not really fulfilling to me, and I wanted to be more creative. Um, and so that's how I ended up getting into early stage startups. Uh, and the previous three were kind of agnostic with industry. They were one was in food delivery, corporate food delivery. Uh, one was in like home improvement. Uh, and the most recent one was in fintech, which was like uh, small personal loans. Um, but the the main criteria that was similar with all the startups were that they were very early stage either at seed or pre-seed level, and basically just trying to gain traction, do the product market fit. And so I was helping them build out their operations from like zero to one um, from scratch, essentially. That That's uh, interesting, Gilbert. So coming to the topic, right? I mean, how, uh, how did you change and get into hydroponic uh, in industry, if I were to say so? Yeah, so I actually started VegBed while I was still working full-time. Um, Back a couple years ago, I wanted to start a vertical farm myself, uh, join a couple other people. Uh, we were looking to open a vertical farm in upstate New York. Uh, we had pretty much all the planning uh, laid out. We had an architect. We had the, the land uh, already acquired uh, from the farmer. Um, however, the, the funding that we, we needed for the actual greenhouse construction, uh, we didn't, there was no VC that was willing to be the lead investor. So... Uh, it was just kind of one of those things where, you know, we tried, we tried, we tried for a really long time, probably like nine or ten months. Uh, we were going out to try to fundraise for this greenhouse, but uh, no one was willing to, to give us the money for it. Um, so that, that project eventually disbanded. Uh, but I still wanted to be involved in the space because I thought that this was kind of the future of, of farming. Uh, and I was thinking about something that I could do. Uh, alone and bootstrap it without having to require an enormous amount of capital to start up front. And that's kind of how I got the idea to start VegBed um, from from the beginning. Wow, interesting. So, so Albert, if you can just take a step back and talk uh, a little more about hydroponic farming itself. I mean, it's a new concept. Uh, we are hearing it uh, all over the world these days. But if you can just deep dive a little bit on the concept initially. Yeah, so the main premise with hydroponic farming, and which is also usually tied in with indoor farming, um, is that it uses a lot less resources than traditional soil farming out in the field. Because you can imagine when you're um, watering your plants outdoors or in the field, when you when you when you um, when you water them, the the water evaporates pretty quickly. Right, so you have to constantly 
be watering it. It uses a lot of resources. But with hydroponic indoor farming, the water actually gets recycled. So you usually have a large reservoir that holds all the water that you need. And then it either gets pumped in through um, a different, uh, different kinds of systems up into the, the growing trays. And then it'll water the plants. And then the water will come back down into the system and just go through like a closed loop cycle over and over again. So the, the statistics for hydroponic indoor farming is usually it, it uses 90 to 99% less water than what you would use in traditional soil farming. So it's very appealing in that aspect. Got it, got it. So, uh, uh, Albert, you mentioned that, uh, you know, it was very expensive for you to set up. So how much, uh, how costly it is and how much time does it take to set it up? Uh, if you can just help us understand. You mean like a, a, a vertical, a full-scale vertical farm? Yes, yes. Oh, um, well, for context, the vertical farm that we were trying to construct was, I believe, 10, 10 or 20,000 square feet. Sorry, I don't know what that would be in square meters, but um, that cost, would we were looking to raise two and a half million to construct that. So that kind of gives you an idea uh, of the amount of money that would be required to build. But that, that's like a larger scale commercial size farm. Um, mm. you can, if you're doing it as a hobbyist and you, you want to grow vegetables at home in a hydroponic system, that's very cheap. You can do that for less than 100 USD, no problem. Wow, okay. So, uh, since you, you iterated to this product, right, I mean, uh, because of the funding, because uh, not many uh, VCs actually funded this concept as well, as you mentioned. So, yeah. how this idea of VegBed come about? I mean, what was the inspiration for you? Yeah, so my idea for VegBed was, one, the industry standard currently for these types of gourmet, because, right, these, these farms don't use soil. They use traditionally something called rock wool. Uh, which is essentially made out of stone, like pulverized stone. And then it's superheated to make this thin filament, and then they turn it into a cube. So it's uh, it's a very, it's like, a, you can think of it as a sponge, right? And so it's, it's something where the seed can start, and then the roots can penetrate, and then it'll hold. So that's kind of like the replacement for the soil. Um, and this material has been around for over 50 years. It's used in the housing industry. But the problem is, like, it's, it's very cheap, but... It's not biodegradable. It's not sustainable. It's sometimes that it's been linked to causing lung cancer because it's essentially glass fibers. So if you handle it improperly, you can inhale the glass fibers. It'll get stuck in your lungs, and then that's no good. Um, so when I found that out, I thought, hey, you know, if we're going to talk about saving water, saving energy, um, doing all that while farming, like why don't we do something about this growing medium, this soilless medium? And so my idea was to think about the material that could be used that wasn't on the market yet that was sustainable, biodegradable, and that's how I came up with the idea for utilizing bamboo for the veg bed growing medium. Interesting. So you, you're saying that the mats that you're you're creating, these are all made out of bamboo? Yes, bamboo fiber, 100% bamboo fiber, yeah. Got it. And, and is this uh, very unique in the industry or, or uh, there are other, other varieties as well? Yeah, we are... We are the first. We are the first and only ones right now, currently on the market that offer a bamboo fiber substrate. There are other materials available out there, but they're either a combination of they are sustainable but they aren't biodegradable, or they're biodegradable but they're not made from sustainable materials. So I wanted to try to tackle both of those aspects in one product. Um, but yeah, there's um, you know there's hemp fiber. There's um, you know. Um, peat moss, um, a lot of other different um, 
bio-based materials, but sometimes they're not um, as sustainable as bamboo. Got it, got it. So, uh, Albert, the thing is, uh, you know, because while I was, uh, uh, you know, talking about uh, your journey, you know, mm -hmm. uh, Vegbed has grown to 26 different countries now, right? Mm -hmm. So, how did you scale up so so fast? And, and how was your experience, if you can talk about your journey in that sense as well? Yeah, so it all, um, so in terms of amount of money that I spent to start the company, I, I would say it's very, very minimal compared to a lot of people. I, I bootstrapped it in the beginning with about 1500 USD of my own money. And that was essentially for website um, and some prototype development cost in the beginning when I was trying to develop this material. Uh, so I had to like uh, find these factories that could make it and then get samples and do, do different runs and tests. Um, and so the beginning, you know, that's how much it cost me. And then I just started reaching out to people via Instagram uh, and Facebook. Essentially, I was looking for microgreen farmers, asked them if they would be interested in trying this new material, give it a, give it a test run. And a lot of them were very open um, and appreciative of getting the free samples. So I didn't use any, any money for, for advertisement, like on Facebook or anything. It was all organic direct to the consumer, just outreach, you know, message, message, DM, DM. But I didn't, but the one thing I want to make clear on that is that I didn't just create, create like a singular template and just kind of blast it out to like 50,000 people. I specifically chose certain hydroponic farmers uh, that I saw growing and made those messages tailored to what they were doing. Um, and I think doing it that way, it's, it's harder to scale that, but the response rate was a lot higher with these people. So... That's just kind of how it started. Mm -hmm. Yo, that, that, that is very true. I mean, customizing uh, to the T. But uh, Albert, mm -hmm. how, how did you, uh, you know, manage the logistics uh, while, while you expanding into different countries outside of US? Yeah, it, it was, it was uh, difficult because obviously um, one of the big elements of, of selling internationally um, is dealing with like freight costs uh, and like supply chain, third party um, you know, at that point, I've never, uh, my only experience with shipping was the, you know, the United States Postal Service or like UPA, UPS, DHL. Um, but then when you're shipping larger things, you need to use freight in that whole world of shipping with like containers and stuff like that. I had no experience in. So it took me a while to kind of read up on that. And I had to go through a bunch of companies um, back and forth uh, to try to find a, a good freight forwarder. And luckily, after, after a couple months, I found a good company that handles all my international shipping for me. So whenever I need to ship to a certain country, I just ask them for a quote, like, oh, how much is it going to cost to ship to Austria or South Africa, uh, you know, or, or Italy or any other country. And they usually get back to me uh, within a few hours with a quote. Um, and then I can take it and, and give it to the customer at that point. Uh, but that's kind of how I was able to expand internationally by finding like a really good uh, third party um, shipment uh, provider. Wow, that, that's interesting because that is the backbone of your business in that sense. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say 80% um, of my sales currently now are B2B. So I do rely heavily on the freight company to help me out with a lot of these uh, shipments. Got it, got it. So, so uh, Albert, what are the challenges uh, that you, you're facing uh, you know, with respect to uh, the industry that you are in? And overall, the challenges that hydroponic farming as an industry faces, if you can throw some light on that as well. Yeah, so in terms of the difficulties of the 
actual just like being an e-commerce bit te technically you know i'm categorized as an e-commerce business because i have a shopify site that's where i sell most of the product d2c but then i also have um people reach out to like larger firms reach out to read directly if they want like a larger order or like more specific specifications for the product that um for their system so i'll create it um specifically that will fit their system um the, the biggest challenge that's been recently happening obviously is like this whole supply chain issue so uh, last the end toward the end of last year for about three months I actually completely ran out of stock of the product and that was very very nerve-wracking uh, and frustrating because nobody knew this was the time when all of the all the containers were just sitting outside the ports of LA um, and nobody knew when they would be able to get in um, you know and so I would co contact one of the uh, uh, my managers and they just they're like oh we have no idea when it's going to come like it's in we it's in the container but it's somewhere out in the ocean outside of Los Angeles we don't know when it's going to get in uh, and so I had to deal with that and that was that was very frustrating things have kind of calmed down a bit now um, but that was a challenge uh, kind of having to deal with something that was out of your control and just talking to customers and being like I'm really sorry uh, you know the raw materials there we'll, we'll get it to you as soon as we can just trying to reassure them that you know you're doing everything you possibly can to to get these these this production and orders through for them uh, so that was one of the biggest recent challenges in terms of challenges of the hydroponic industry um i think just overall um getting the price point down right so for for hydroponic growing it's still quite expensive overall for the end product like majority of these farms are growing lettuce uh and at the end of the day you know if the lettuce is 10 cents more than the field grown lettuce, people are just going to buy the thing that's cheaper, right? So they don't really care that it's hydroponic. They don't really care that it's like uses 90% less water. At the end of the day, when they're at the store, for them, they're looking at the price point. So I think the challenge for hydroponic growing in the future is being able to scale up to a scale up production to an amount where they can get the cost of lettuce or, or whatever greens that they're growing to at least the same price as field-grown produce or cheaper. If they can get to that point, then I think, um, you know, the growth will, will exponentially go from there. Oh, absolutely. In fact, that was supposed yeah. to be my question on that because, Albert, uh, oh, yeah. this is the user behavior, right? I mean, yeah. uh, if a consumer actually sees a product which is, say, organic uh, or, for that matter, use, uh, using hydroponics, Mm -hmm. How will that consumer decide, right? I mean, uh, is there a flavor which is very, very different if a produce is grown through hydroponic system versus a traditional farming? How, how does this... Uh, yeah, so, so the other aspect about hydroponic farming is that it doesn't require um, pesticides, right? Because you're, you're growing indoors, usually in a greenhouse or like an, an old uh, industrial warehouse building. So the access for bugs and other insects is very, very minimal. There, there's some... There's always going to be some form of, of pesticides, but usually it's manageable to the point where you don't have to add any external chemicals in it. So the product is very clean, where you can technically just eat it straight from the, the actual, you know, the reservoir of the, of the system. Uh, and so that's one great aspect about it. And you can grow at 365, so there's no, there's no season with hydroponic growing. You can grow every single day. Uh, because a lot of them use supplemental lighting, so even when the days are shorter or if it's cloudy, there's always uh, LED lighting that can replicate the sun for the plants to grow. So you have very consistent production. Uh, so there isn't a time where like, oh, we, we're we're lacking lettuce this week or we're low. It's always going to be the same amount every single week. 
Um, and then the other advantage of uh, indoor growing is that you reduce um, foodborne illnesses. So there's been a lot of, um, you know, recent E. coli outbreaks with lettuce coming from, you know, California, uh, Arizona, stuff like that. So in hydroponic indoor farming um, helps mitigate those issues as well. Um, yeah, so for the consumer, for, for the, the organic label, yeah, they do look for that. And there's been an ongoing battle recently, actually, with hydroponic farmers and organic farmers. And basically, hydroponic farmers want to get that USD organic certification, right? Because that's kind of like the, the symbol that people kind of look for when they go into uh, shopping for organic foods. However, the organic farmers are trying to fight that and say, like, oh, you're not truly uh, an organic farm. You can't utilize that label. Um, so it's been like an ongoing battle between the soil farmers and the indoor farmers, whether or not they can label their produce as organic, you know. Interesting. So, Albert, uh, you start off with uh, providing this match. So what are your expansion plans? And are you, are you looking at in, uh, adding a few more products into the system? Yeah, yeah, 100%. Uh, I'm in the process right now to develop some other products. Uh, so right now, like the mat we have are mainly for microgreen production. Um, but then there's a lot of farms out there that also grow like tomatoes uh, and cucumbers and, and larger plants. Uh, in order to grow those larger plants, you need like larger cubes of medium. Uh, and so right now I'm prototyping some larger cubes and blocks that uh, will be able to uh, withstand the growth of, of larger plants. Uh, the, the main difficulty with that is that uh, with the bamboo fiber, I don't have, there's no additives or any glues in it. It's just made via a mechanical process that basically um, uh, it basically tangles the, the fibers together and creates that mat. Um, but in order to create like something rigid or stiff is much more difficult like a cube because if you're not adding any glue or any binder to it, it's hard for the material to kind of stay stiff. Uh, so that's one of the challenges that I'm, I'm going through right now because a, a lot of the other um, mediums out there, they'll, they'll add some sort of glue to it to, to create that structure. Um, but I, I'm trying to keep the, the product as natural as possible and, and avoid doing that. Got it, got it. So, uh, uh, Albert, I think there are a few questions in the chat box. Let me take, uh, let me take oh, them. So, see, there's yeah. a listener, listener named Radha and she's asking, Albert, how does the installation process work? How does the manufacturing take place? And are there any specific elements that you add which can stand out? Um, installation process. Um, so it's, it, there's not much insulate. If, if, if you're referring to the VegRed product, there isn't much installation that's required. It's essentially most of the farms I work with, they have, um, you can think of like a rack system. So they usually have four or five levels high of, of a, of a shelving system. Uh, and inside the shelves, they'll have these trays, um, that hold the, the growing mat. And so they'll put the growing mat inside the tray. They'll sprinkle it with seeds, and then the system will just pump water up. It'll wet the mat, and then it'll drain out, and then it'll do that like once or twice a day. Uh, and then, the, and then the, the seeds will just grow straight up from the mat. Um, manufacturing, yes, manufacturing, like I mentioned, is just for the actual mat, if that's what you're referring to. It's just a machine that um, tangles the fibers together to create like a more uh, rigid structure. Um, any specific elements? that you add, which stand out? Um, no, I mean, I want to keep the product as natural possible, so it's 100% bamboo. Uh, I haven't added any sort of nutrients or anything like that. Most of that stuff, farmers like to add themselves. 
so I want to keep it as simple and clean as possible. So once the farmer gets it, if they want to add specific nutrient or do some sort of treatment to it, they can do that on their own. Um, yeah. Uh, how did the shift happen from a backer mechanic to then? Yeah, it was a very, uh, it was a, uh, Sakshi, that was a very kind of roundabout way of getting here. I think, uh, I didn't mention, but the, 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 re the how I initially got into hydroponics was a friend of mine had posted a photo on Facebook of his hydroponic farm uh, on his balcony out in California. Uh, and I had no idea what hydroponic farming was at the time, but then he told me what it was. I did more research and I kind of got obsessed with it. And then it became initially my hobby. I started growing myself and then I was thinking, hey, you know, we should be doing more of this, you know, not just in the U.S., but the entire world, right? Because water scarcity is a big thing and it's going to continue to be a big thing. Um, so this is definitely a way to kind of conserve water, especially with, uh, with the large, large scale field growth agriculture. Um, Abra, how was your team moment? I was looking at the So I've, I'm pretty much a solo founder at this point, um, Ayush. Uh, I've had I've hired a couple of contractors here and there to help out with um, some marketing and some web development uh, for the Shopify site. Uh, and I had someone recently help me out uh, part-time for some business development. But for the most part of this journey, it's been by myself, uh, which has been difficult uh, for many different reasons. Uh, I am looking for uh, some more help uh, right now. But for I've been able to manage. Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to manage by myself uh, if things continue to pick up uh, over the next six months, uh, but I'll do what I can. Uh, but yeah, team building uh, is definitely something that I'm going to be looking at uh, very, very soon. Um, also, what kind of innovation are you looking to add in the Is there something that you want to do differently? Um, yeah, I mean, the whole, my whole idea and want behind VegBed as a company, the mission statement is essentially trying to get these indoor hydroponic farms away from this rockwool medium, right? Because that's still the predominant growing material that they use, but it's not sustainable. It's not biodegradable. And so for them to come around, for all these farms to say, hey, we use 90% water, we're sustainable farming, but they don't address that end piece where they just toss it away. And I just found out recently when I was at a conference that um, some countries in the EU if you use that product and you discard it, you actually have to pay a fee to discard it. So it would make sense for them to go away from that product because they end up actually paying more since they have to pay to throw it away. Um, so it's a very interesting time right now to be in. But that's the goal, to try to get the farmers away from Rockwell. Um, Katan, are there any brands that are doing revolutionary agri that you look up to or would want your brand to work towards in the future? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think so. One of the big challenge, so there's this company called Iron Ox. Um, and they, they've, they've been doing a lot of robotics uh, within agriculture, so like harvesting. Uh, and one of the biggest challenges right now with indoor farming, uh, of vertical farming, is the labor aspect, right? So like I mentioned, you know, Water, 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 and lighting. Um, you know, energy. All that has been very researched and calculated out and gotten to a good point. However, the labor portion of it is still what is the predominant cost in a lot of these vertical farms. A lot of this stuff still needs to be hand seeded, hand harvested, hand cleaned. 
uh, it's very labor intensive and it adds to a lot of the cost that gets reduced from all the other aspects. So um, Ironox, they're doing a lot of kind of like you can think of Amazon type stuff with like the robots on the ground that pick up the racks and move it around the farm um, and that do like automatic harvesting and picking. Um, I think that's the next stage for indoor farming. A lot of robotics, agrobotics is what they call it now. Um, and getting getting uh, the labor cost down will will hopefully get the end product cost down, and so hopefully in the future we'll see indoor farm grown lettuce to be cheaper than field grown lettuce, uh, and that's I hope the ultimate goal. You know, um, Arvin, uh, that you have been doing all the science again. No, <laughs> thanks, Arvin. Appreciate that. <laughs> <laughs> So th thanks for uh, taking up all the questions, Albert. Uh, but yeah, yeah. I would you you talking about the cost element, right? Yes. So uh, how how costly is the energy consumption? I mean, is it very because uh, many indoor farms have uh, those LED lights being required, yes. right? So how costly yes. is that? So there's two. Um, let's see. Yeah, there's two kinds of um, indoor farming right now. The major ones are the ones that are built in indoors that have no windows. So they rely 100% on LED lighting. And then there's a couple of farms out there that are still using like greenhouses on top of roof buildings. And so they don't have to use as much lighting. So those are much more um, uh, energy efficient. However, most of those rooftop green, most of those rooftop greenhouse farms are just one level, right? So you think of like a two dimensional farm. So it's basically just, uh, one level of growing, but the the ones that are indoor in the buildings that are using the LED lighting, those can go up to like 10, 15. So it's kind of a trade-off where it's like you're using less energy, but then your output is a lot less. And then when you have one that has a really high density output, but you're using a lot of LED lighting, um, I don't know the exact numbers to compare the two. Um, a lot of that's like proprietary information that these farms don't really give off. But um, I mean, at this point, LED lighting is pretty cheap. So I wouldn't say lighting is a huge cost. I think heating, heating and cooling is probably the bigger cost, right? So a lot of a, a thing that people don't consider when you're building these vertical farms, you probably know like the 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 ceiling of your house, or if you have like two or three floors of your home, the the higher levels are going to be a lot hotter than the bottom levels because you know heat rises. So when you build a vertical farm that's like 18, 20, 20 feet tall. Um, the temperature difference from the, the ground level to the top level might be 10 to 15 degrees difference. So you have to have a very powerful cooling system to be able to maintain a consistent temperature or else the, the crops at the top will get messed up and then the crops at the bottom will be fine. And so that requires a lot of energy to maintain. Uh, so I think that that actually costs more than the lighting at this point. Uh, but that's one of the, 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 the large costs. Yeah. Got it, got it. So, so uh, Albert, I think uh, you've covered all the questions as well. So, I just mm -hmm. want to know, uh, as an entrepreneur, you would always be in action mode, right? Uh, so, how do you unwind? How I unwind? Uh, recently, I guess right before the pandemic, uh, summer of 2019, I started getting into bouldering and rock climbing. Um, I w it was something that was never interesting to me when I saw rock climbing. It, it was like, okay, that was nice, but I never saw myself doing it. Uh, however, I, I tried it at the local gym uh, and I just fell in love with it. So I usually go once or twice a week to go climb um, by myself. It's a, it's fun to climb with friends, but it's also really great to climb in solitude because it's a very focused activity where you kind of have a very singular goal, right? Where you have to get to the top. 
Um, and there's a couple ways you can get to the top, but usually, you know, it's something where it's like you have to get there, or you or you or you don't make it. And so it's a very it's a very focused singular goal, and you're you're kind of just you're not thinking about anything else, right? So if you're very stressed out from the day and you go climbing, you kind of don't think of anything else except for that end goal of getting to the top. And it's a very good metaphor for life, where it's like you have this mountain that you need to climb. You can't give up halfway, or you're going to die. So you just got to either make it or you don't try. And so you you just have to fully commit to it. <laughs> essentially. Wow, interesting. So Albert, uh, before you leave, uh, one last advice that you would want to give our students who are listening to you live right now, uh, specifically yeah, so with I, respect to hydroponics. Specifically with hydroponics. Um, Okay, I'll give two things that advice. One, if you're going to get into the hydroponic space, um, I would suggest just trying it out on your own and just learning how how it works. Um, it's really fun because once you learn it, you can kind of grow your own vegetables unlimitedly um, for a very very low cost. So I think if you want to get into the space or even like open up um, hydroponic farm in India, like that's totally doable. And there's been a couple companies that have been doing that uh, on like uh, rooftops in India. Um, so I would definitely research the technology and just start trying to do it on your own, uh, in your own home and learning the, the process. Uh, and in terms of just like entrepreneurship in general, if you just want to start a company, if you're not interested in hydroponics, but you're just trying to start a company, um, one of the best advice pieces of advice I've gotten was do things that don't scale. So, um, don't always try to, don't try to over optimize and build out things so greatly in the beginning. Uh, because a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs think that if they build it, people will come. Uh, and so, really try to talk to your target customer, your target market, and find out what their problem is or what you can help with, and then design a solution for that particular problem or something that like really annoys them. Right? Like one of the questions I ask customers, like, what annoys you the most? Like, what what about growing like really makes you you know angry or you wish you could um, have a solution for? And when, when you kind of dig into those pain points, you can find a really unique um, problem to solve for people. Instead of thinking that you know what the problem is, talk to, your, talk to the potential customers and figure out what, what, what annoys them. That's usually a really good route to go. Oh, absolutely. Very, very important, Albert. Mm -hmm. I think, uh, Albert, uh, it was good to have you here on a podcast today. And thank you for taking out time. And it was lovely having you here. Yeah, no, it was great, Rishabh. Thank you. I appreciate the time. And... Uh, Thanks everyone for listening, and uh, I hope you uh, learned uh, learned some stuff. And if you have any further questions, you know, go ahead and email me albert at vegbed.com. Happy to answer them for you. All right, thank you, thank you, Albert, and thank you all our listeners for joining in today. Signing off for now. Goodbye. Okay. Bye, guys. <laughs>